right, hello and welcome to Between the Liars with Ryan and Josh. Hello, everyone. And we have a brand new special guest. Very excited to introduce her to you, Danielle. Hey, everybody. Well, thank you Good for joining us Thanks today. Thanks for having me, Ryan. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. And uh, you know what? Uh, she's done too much for me to try and just give her intro. So I'm going to let Danielle introduce herself. So take it away. <laughs> so uh, my name's Danielle. I am a veteran, United States Navy veteran. I graduated from Arizona State University in 2020 with my degree in community advocacy and social policy. Um, I will be attending in the fall for my MSW and Master's of Social Work. I've had my run-ins with uh, criminal justice, but I've also come out on top and uh, substance abuse. You know, I've, uh, I, I fought addiction for many years and I was able to break those chains and come out on top with the help of my family uh, and folks here in Arizona. And, you know, I just have so much to share to anybody that's willing to listen regarding that. And, um, you know, my sexuality is also a a big thing that, you know, I I love to share. uh, And and the struggles that come along with all of that accumulated together. So, you know, I'm just grateful to be here. And I'm an open book. So, yeah, we're excited to have you. And uh, just as an announcement now, we'll, we'll do more on social media with this. But uh, Danielle and I are going to do an interview and she is going to be able to give you the rundown of just all of her uh, political thoughts and stuff, uh, how she's been really involved, lots of interesting stuff. So Tuesday at uh, 530 Central is when we're going to do that of this coming week. So um Today, we're going to be discussing the parental rights in education bill, most commonly referred to as the Don't Say Gay. Now, we did, uh, we started a new series uh, where Ryan reads you the bills and just goes over the information. There is no debate, no opinions, no interjection, no commentary. It's just so that you are aware of what legislators are passing. And so I did link that in the description below, and we'll probably do some fancy uh, YouTube thing where it'll appear like, above Josh in post. But if you want to know all of the details and the seven-page document where we just go through it, that is going to, uh, you can access that there. Uh, But today we're going to discuss, we are going to interject our opinions. (laughs) So before we do that, uh, Josh, why don't you tell them where they can find us on social media? Yeah, you can find all of our social media accounts on Instagram, Facebook, where you can also, where we broadcast live these live streams. Our Twitter, YouTube channel, where this is also live, TikTok, where we post all types of interviews, and where if that's where if I understand correctly, with Ryan, where you and Danielle met. Yep, that is correct. Um, I did not mention that I did work in the political world for about a year and a half for a state representative here, and it was amazing. I got to meet some amazing people. I have a lot to share about that too. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited. Well, we're going to keep Danielle around for a little while. So whatever we don't get in today, she's going to be back. I can promise you that. (laughs) Uh, Remember, if you want to hang out with us behind the scenes more casually, uh, you can check out our memberships. You can join our Discord and just kind of chat with us there. See us as people instead of, you know, (laughs) celebrity figures. (laughs) That might be a strong (laughs) But uh, yeah, so (laughs) why don't we start by just, I'll, I'll briefly bullet out what the bill is in case you aren't familiar with the details and you're joining us today. Uh, so, number one, this bill is designed to protect the parents' rights to make healthcare decisions for their children. 
Um, so anything that is the school gives them or approves, the parents have to be notified of. Number two, it prevents teachers from deviating from the approved curriculum and enshrines that basically when they discuss sexual orientation, gender identity, that has to take place at what they call the appropriate times, right? So it has to be uh, through the curriculum and it has to be age appropriate. And then lastly, the big thing that it does is ensures the parents know what's going on and that they know what is being taught. So it actually requires that if there's going to be like specific changes, then parents have to be notified in advance so that they're at least aware of what's going on, even though they, they might not be weighing in. Danielle, is there anything else, or Josh, that, uh, I mean, you guys have read the bill. Is there anything I missed or do you just want to jump right into our discussion? I'm good. I, I say we jump in if you're ready, Josh. Yeah, uh, I'll just give my, my my overarching opinion and I'll return to it later. I think this <laughs> bill's existence is just dumb. It didn't need to be here. Right? I don't think it uh, – <laughs> we'll get into it. But I just think this entire thing like has some critical flaws and was redundant for a lot of reasons. Okay, so actually that's, that's a great segue um, because my next question for you guys is what are your thoughts? So, Josh, we'll come back to you and then we'll go to Danielle. Josh, <laughs> tell us more about why you think this is redundant. There was no involvement of gender identity or, or sexual orientation literature in the K through third grade, which is the only parts of which this bill applies to the education system in the curriculum in the first place. Even the, the Department of Education in Florida already said that. So none of the curriculum got changed. It got prevented from being changed in a certain way. It's also uh, commits one of the gravest sins of any legis piece of legislation in that it's vague. It says that they can't, you can't teach about gender identity or sexuality or, or sexual orientation uh, in, in the K through 12. So can these kids not watch Mickey Mouse because Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse are in a relationship because that's a still a sexual orientation. So can we talk about that? Can that be a part of the curriculum? Because it doesn't explicitly target any identity. So either it's read as the subtext let us, lets us know it's targeting an explicit identity, or we can't involve Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse in the curriculum. This bill's dumb. Like, its vagueness commits the sin of legislation shouldn't be vague, because then it's either letting the undertext speak, or it's creating vague rules where different school districts and different people are going to apply this differently, and it's going to provide an inconsistent application of the law for the citizens of Florida. My second major thought is be the financial liability it places on the school districts over the court cases that can spawn out of this is dangerous for the education system. If the state government is going to take an action, then the state government has lawyers on retainer and has legal fees and has a lawyer, you know, lawyers and set up to represent the state. And so making the individual school districts liable can increase the financial strain on an already financially strained education system, which just isn't helping anything. So one of the, you mentioned it's vague and this, this is vague. Usually I am critical um, of laws that are vague because of where it can be taken. And I can agree with you there, Josh. One of the reasons that I think that they were vague is because they defer to the Board of Education. So they didn't want to have this law be determining what is and is not appropriate. And that, I think that that might be a fair criticism. We'll see how this played out. But it does defer through that vague language to yeah. the Board of Education. And I think for that reason, this is one time that because they've made that connection, trying not to override the education system too much there. I might let it slide. Uh, Danielle, what do you, what do you think? 
Well, first and foremost, I don't think that sex should be taught in schools, period. I think that needs to be left up to the parent. Um, if we're going to talk about sex in schools, I personally believe that it needs to be regarding reproductive, uh, how to continue procreation. That's it. Myself, why I'm so avid about speaking and, and, and speaking loudly about this is because I was groomed at a very young age. My seventh grade track coach did some things to me um, that were not appropriate. My uh, high school softball coach, same. And then my elementary school principal and his wife. You know, I was 16 and she was 38 and he was 45. I lived with them for two years, slept in the same bed with them. They bought me things. They gave me things. It, I felt that that was okay. Before all of that, I had I had the same boyfriend all through school. Like, you know, I'm, it's just important to take care of children, especially with their underdeveloped brains. Their cognitive capabilities are nowhere near what they, sh you know, to, to learn things like this. And children are people pleasers. They want to please adults. And... If they hear certain things, and I, my feeling is that they're going to mold into something that they might not even be like, like I did, you know? And my life since then has not been easy. And that's the inner struggle. And, and my family, they tried to protect me, but it was just, I was so consumed mm -hmm. by the lies of the groomers that, I mean, I'm, I'm glad to even be alive, yeah. you know, because that suicide thought was over and over and over and I, I overdosed and almost died in December of 2010. Like wow. this has been hell for me. And and now that I feel like I've, I'm uh, not above it, but learn to accept it and to grow from it and forgive, I no longer hold that hatred, that I'm able to share my story and show people what can happen if we teach these kids, I don't care if it's straight, gay, whatever, this information at this age is not okay. Not okay. And I think that one of the important things about this bill is it it only regulates and bans the instruction of these things in kindergarten through third grade. And at that time, like a, a child is not going through puberty more often than not at that time. And so for teachers <laughs> to what, – what's so funny, Josh? More often than not. Well, <laughs> these kids are like – Five through eight. Well, I say more often than not because maybe poor language. But when you get to third grade, there are early bloomers. And women tend to bloom more early than men. But I'm saying more, almost, almost exclusively this is not something that they're dealing with at this time. And that's why I think the language that, that the bill uses, which is that it needs to be appropriate, right? Because if the school board decides at this grade they're going to talk about it, then it's introduced and then they have to talk about both. So I think that kind of what Danielle was talking about there gets protected through this bill in that it prevents uh, the most vulnerable from being um, having adults who are authority figures, because whether you, you, whether you think about it this way or not, Teachers are authority figures. Like they are, are teaching these children. They are in a position of authority over them, which can make children vulnerable in that instance. It's hard to say no. You no. can't, you know, you, you respect these people. And the part of the bill that is not blurry and that really stood out to me was where it said the procedures must reinforce the fundamental, and I'll say it again, the fundamental right of parents to make decisions regarding the upbringing of their children. That's it. That is why I did 
definitely don't think sex ed or anything like that should be taught in school, especially gender identity or fluidity. You know, I'm not, I, I just, it's not okay. It's just the parent's job. That has nothing to do with the LGBTQ community, has nothing to do with the straight community. That only has something to do with, these are my children. I get to raise them and teach them the way that I want them to be raised. Now, if they want to go and allow their child to take the hormones for, you know, such transitioning, fine. That, that's none of my business. You know, that's their decision. And, and that's the way it should be. So that's where, you know, I stand and I stand firmly. But I am always here and willing to listen and grow and learn. And that's why I like to be a part of these. Josh, you mentioned Mickey Mouse earlier and how he's in a heterosexual relationship with a mouse. Um, <laughs> I, I think it again goes down to the importance of the language is that you, you cannot instruct on these things. Like, of course, relationships exist. What they're preventing teachers from doing because sex ed and gender identity is not a part of the curriculum at that time, they're preventing teachers from bringing that up on their own and teaching that instead of like, of, of course, if, if the teacher is married, that's completely different than for them to be bringing those ideas to the children as this is the way things are to where, oh, you know, heterosexual means that it's between a man and a woman. Like it, it's, it's, that's completely different than I'm watching a cartoon about a mouse and he happens to have a girlfriend. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I, to me, those are not the same thing. Yeah. I mean, this is just for a question of, one, how often are we finding ourselves in situations of where the instructors, you know, because it falls in, in the similar lines, I feel like, with the critical race theory thing of, you know, no one who was talking about banning a critical race theory, I bet in any of those classrooms, the name Derek Bell or the legal studies aspect that is critical race theory came up, you know, out of, you know, no one was talking about banning reading Derek Bell's work about intersectionality, right. <laughs> you know, from that is because it is something you wouldn't even give to an undergraduate to read because sure. they're not going to understand it because they're little undergraduates and they're still just little children in their own ways. So... Part of me just wonders of how it plays out of where, how many teachers were going against this in the first place. Because writ large, that bring, brings up a question of, if you have a curriculum set out by a state, um, especially in the K through 12 system, which is regulated to all hell and back 10,000 ways. And the primary reason I won't, I don't teach, you know, in the K through 12 system is because I can actually say what I want to say, not getting trouble for it. And that's not true for the K through 12 system. Yeah. When those people go off script, that's usually a problem in like in itself. Like the math teacher needs to be teaching math. The history teacher needs to be te teaching history. Like, that's just, you signed up to work in the yeah. K through 12 system. If you wanted academic freedom, you need to get yourself a tenure track position. I'm sorry. I, it's the K through 12 system. You knew what you signed into. <laughs> I, I think there is a parallel, even though there's separate issues. There is a parallel between um, what's going on here and the critical race theory. And this is the shell game that I strongly dislike that the left is playing right now is they say, well, we're not teaching the legal thought process, right? We're, we're not teaching it in all of its dense glory. So, but they are saying, if you are white you are a part of X category. They teach the categorization. They teach the oppressor and oppressed. They teach about power dynamics and how racism only cuts one way and requires that you have power. So here's, here's a little uh, analogy I would use. Just because you've boiled a cake down into a cupcake doesn't mean it's not a mini cake. Like you're still teaching it in its essence. And I do agree to an extent, Josh, that it's kind of ridiculous that this law had to be passed 
Yet here we are. And the amount of teachers who have threatened to quit because now they can't teach this. And the fact Disney has to come out uh, because they have people in the corporation who are like, this needs to be taught as a very small vocal minority, I think speaks to the fact that this absolutely needed to be passed because there's a, a, enough people who were doing it that now we need a law to say that. And, you know, maybe it's unfortunate. I think it is unfortunate that that's the case. But it still needs to happen to prevent people from going off script in the way that they were. I mean, there also could be a reaction of the overarching idea of the government coming in and further regulating and censoring the education process to a degree. Because, you know, when we talk about the right to raise, you know, your children in a certain way, then the way of the American history is taught. Do we teach Thanksgiving and the expansion of the Western states as the, well, what is like the like phrase they use, the historical phrase that America was always going to expand West. There's some book that, that was used to, you know, rhetorically and even to a very much so a degree religiously justify the expansion of the United States like do we teach that version of the United States history or do we say there was a series of contracts broken with indigenous people and populations that were displaced and genocide and because based on which of, of those American histories we teach manifest destiny Michael Brewer that's <laughs> thank exactly you Michael right. manifest <laughs> destiny so depending on whether or not we accept and believe manifest destiny or we reject manifest destiny that shapes the type of American we communicate um, we are. Sure. So when it comes down to raising the ideal American citizen, the way we teach history, how we frame history, also significantly plays into this. And so this, the idea of the state coming in and saying this is the appropriate way um, and increasing the censorship might, at least, you know, from my opinion, draw a lot of people going concerned of that, you know, if, if their government can say, you know, you all can only discuss something this certain way right now, what other topics will they eventually do it to? I mean, this is a lot of power the government just came in and said they had. And that's something to be considered even beyond what the bill itself is doing is now the government can say, hey, this topic can't be taught to this group of people. And maybe that's a decision a local election board can come through that parents can vote on or that through, you know, independent school, private schools that they can go through, you know, institutions that, you know, allow parents to have that over that. But the government coming in and making decisions like this is still the government coming in and making decisions of what's acceptable and unacceptable to to, to an extent. And, and to your point, Josh. Fact check me if I'm wrong on this, but to support your argument here, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the Board of Education is appointed by the governor, which means theoretically Ron DeSantis wins re-election in November. He's the one who appoints that. Somebody else takes it. Uh, but still, it is appointed by the governor. So I, I think that yeah. that does support what you're saying, that the government does have a say in that then. Um, Danielle, do you have any thoughts you on know, that? You know, I think that, you know, I think it would behoove all states to have like an independent group of appointees that come together, both right, left, middle, discuss, vote, people who are highly educated that can speak with respect towards each other and come up with a common ground that's both factual and safe for our children. That would be huge, you know, in order to say, okay, this is what happened, this is how it needs to be taught to our kids. Yep. One thing I want to bring up also about this law be being written uh, and, and you stating, you know, it, it's terrible. It even had to be written this way. Let's say that, you know, if I came in and I said, look, we wrote a bill that Christianity was going to be taught in school and parents had no right whatsoever 
to to disagree. That is that's just going to be the way it is. You know what I mean? I feel like that is on the same level, but coming from another side. I'm trying. Mm. You know, I do not like. I do not ever degrade. I do not uh, not not anymore. I'm a different person these days than I was way back then. But uh, I would like for the left to put their feet in our shoes and to see it that way. Let a bill was written that, or or we wanted to teach Christianity in school, and there was nothing you know to do about it. I don't want my kids learning about homosexuality, even though my sexuality is that sounds hypocritical, and it kind of is. Trust me, I live with this daily, you know, and it's a daily inner battle. I you know that's another story, but. I, I wish people would think about it from other aspects and and try and see exactly where we are coming from. Uh, and it's all based on the safety of our kids. And that's what's important. I think this also has the effect of pushing the idea and enshrining the idea that it is the parents who are the ones who should be calling the shots here because they are the, well, really they're the biggest stakeholders and the biggest shareholders in this because it is their kids and they are passing off their kids for the day to be taught by these people. And the assumption has been teachers will be teaching the curriculum. And apparently we have a whole bunch, I mean, scroll through TikTok. There's a whole lot of teachers uh, who have taken to TikTok who, when this legislation was in the works, even before it was signed into law, they were incredibly upset because now they're going to face potentially what you mentioned, Josh, lawsuits or the school will. Um, the number of people who were like, well, we're going to do this anyway, like astounding. Uh, <laughs> and how uh, mostly astounding to me because of how transparent they were that they were going to do this anyway, that this was a thing. Um, while if you watch more of the, the establishment media, they were like, this isn't a thing. But when you watch people's accounts, you can see that it very much was. But it, again, pushes this idea that the parents are the ones who are funding the schools through their taxpayer dollars. They are the ones who have the kids, who have the most vested interest in these kids. And this law, Josh, I think what you made a fair point earlier of, you know, government intervention might be a concern, but I guess to push back on that, I'd say, well, someone's going to teach and do something. Um, it might, And at this point, it's been the school. So to me, the reason that I'm okay with what might be considered a little bit more rigid encroachment is because it is protecting the parents' rights to be involved, not only in their kids' education, but in their kids' health. Because there were schools that were allowing kids to take puberty blockers through the school's nurse, um, and the parents were not allowed to know about it. Like, as a parent... Whether or not I agree with it, I should still be aware. And the fact that, like, my kid couldn't have an aspirin, but then they could take puberty blockers. Like, I, I think that this was a case that called for that encroachment. Like, they needed some kind of rigid law to protect that. Well, what also sounds to me is that the Florida education system needs to learn from the Tennessee education system pretty badly then. Uh, because in, in Tennessee, well, because in Tennessee, um, your local county had a, a board of, of officials that were voted on, and that was the board of education that oversaw like the, all the county schools, the elementary school, the high schools, the middle schools, all the public schools were overseen by your county's local school board. And then every single school had a parent-teacher association of where the parents would come come in and sit down with the teachers and the principals usually once a week, uh, and they would sit down and talk about what was going on in the class, what was going on at the school, what the school programs were doing, what the school programs needed to be doing, and interfacing with the parents that way. Parents were volunteering at the school and being involved. If there is just some 
board of education that DeSantis gets to a point and that then is getting to make all these decisions for all of the Florida schools. I'm going to call that problem number one, that there's not enough local parental oversight from the county level government from there should be not only an elected county board, but there should be like every school should have a very well integrated parent teacher association type organization that's working within the school system itself. Not that only not only benefits like the students, but only gets, you know, gets parents involved in their children's education and let and doesn't let them just pass it off and go, and ignore their children's education and go, oh, well, the state's ed- educating them for me. I don't got to think about it. Right. Because that's, that's a you know, really harmful, you know, position for people to take as well. Um, yeah. That's what I mean, strikes out to me as like the government coming in and saying, you know, we can't teach, you know, or the government coming in and saying, you know, this has to be taught in, in an explicit certain way of like those conversations, you know, can be hiring or it can be had at like the hiring and firing level of like t- teachers and, you know, involvement of like what's acceptable at the local school by the principal and education, you know, commission of the county. There's ways to install oversight that doesn't have to have the governor, the legislator, the president, the, the Congress. Imagine Congress passing a law like this that came through and just, you know, man, and I Congress can hope. Does pass laws man, like please. Like, <laughs> but I mean, but, but think about I it. Mean, like, it like, but Congress to come through and pass a law and say, you know, American history can only be taught in this way and has to communicate this particular message. You know, like, like, and that's what some of like those anti-critical race bills want. You can only present America in a positive light. So I'm being commanded then to indoctrinate students to a certain political viewpoint, even if it is the pro-America one, that's still an, like an, an intentional statement of I'm being instructed to tell my students what to believe rather than trying to help give my students the tools to understand the world and critically analyze and then come to their own conclusions. You know, I don't want students to believe the things, you know, I, I tell my students if they walk away my, from my class agreeing with everything I said, then they didn't engage in critical thinking. That I've, um, I'm, I'm, I'm a flawed human with a, a non-perfect understanding of the world. And if you can't find something you disagree with about me, then you haven't really, really critically engaged with the things I've said. You've just accepted them blindly. To, um, when, and so we got, we got to push the education system like that and not for this is what has to be taught a certain way. So partial agreement again. Um, I, I would say that especially at the higher ed level where you and I teach, Josh, like that, that's especially true, right? Because kids have already had that fundamental understanding. But I would argue that there needs to be a point where instruction has to be taught. And of course, it needs to be truth. But it, it especially, you know, I mean, even your example of history, like it needs to be authentic history. But there comes a point where if you are just kind of like, eh, believe what you want, that like the kids will not have the tools to grow and learn because there is no base for that. And I, I really think that like when you're talking about the critical race theory, like that's Again, that that boils back down the way that it's when it is being taught to the power dynamics, the struggles, oppressor, oppressed. It's not about, hey, America did these terrible things because maybe it doesn't happen as much in the history books as you would like. And that could there could be argument for that. But that's not the same as critical race theory. And and that's kind of the the back and forth that people keep flip flopping on is we want to teach the oppressor oppressed. We want to teach racial essentialism. We want to teach that you cannot supersede or move beyond your physical attributes, whether it be race, gender, sexual orientation, like any of that. I know not all of those are physical, but bear with me. Uh, But the point being that 
they then, when you say we don't want this, it's like, oh, you don't want to teach American history the way that it that it actually happened. And I think that that is just straw manning and disingenuous and, and where it becomes problematic. Go ahead, Daniel. So, you look like you want to say something. I, okay, yeah. yeah. So Go ahead. Jump in there. Regarding critical race theory and the intersectionality of different aspects of people, people look at me and they see a white female. I look like I would be a Democrat, lesbian. And guess what? I am Native American. I am a member of the Choctaw Nation. I used to be registered fully Republican up until recently, this last uh, time that I registered this year, uh, non-party specific. And um, that, I think critical race theory just teaches about, for me, white people are bad for the most, you know what I mean? And you look at somebody, I have short hair, I've got tattoos. I was in the military. She's gay. Guess what? I'm not a lesbian either. Don't. I don't like to be put in a box and then judged for for what they believe I am just by looking at me. Why are we teaching this stuff? Why are we not teaching just algebra and history? Yes, there needs to be. I agree. History needs to be taught and it needs to be taught factually. There's been a lot of of junk coming in. Uh, you know. Christopher Columbus and, you know, all of that. It needs to be tailored to truth and not tailored to one party because that, I feel, is the way we're going. And that is not, this is America. And people defended this country as myself in order for the free, our freedoms. And that's freedom for everybody, not just you, not just you, but everybody. And that's, I will dig my heels into the dirt of this soil and I will fight until the day I die to keep our freedom. And, uh, you know, people taking that away or trying to take it away and just make it all about themselves, not okay. I like what Angela put. Labels are a lazy way to categorize people. Um, <laughs> and then we avoid truly getting to know each other. I, I really do think that if you want to talk about division, whether it be racially, um, whether it be internationally, like pick your category and how you want. I, I think that when you place people into the box of their categories, of course, it can be a useful way to help understand people. Like Josh and I, we study communication. You you assume things about people moving in because by human nature, we hate uncertainty and we want to reduce that uncertainty. And Angela's exactly right. It's lazy because I'm going to make these assumptions. Uncertainty management reduction theory. Uncertainty management theory correction. Hello. Hey, it's uncertainty reduction, uncertainty management. Depending whether I want to reduce, manage, <laughs> same thing. Semantics, Josh. It doesn't matter. Does it? What? It does. You're right. But <laughs> the point being, if the categories are taken far enough, and to just kind of bring it back to today's topic, let's talk about the LGBTQ community. If you only allow someone to identify by their sexual orientation or by their gender identity and you make assumptions from there, that's when you start dehumanizing people when taken far enough. Because if they can only be the box that they check, the identities where they intersect, then it allows you to truly reduce them to just those immutable characteristics. When I worked for the state representative, uh, Representative Walt Blackman, an amazing, amazing man. I was very publicly known in the community here. And, um, you know, again, I'm an open book. My story is all over the Internet. I was being attacked mm. verbally. I had threats on my life, uh, my family's life. The Capitol Police were driving around my home. And where was that coming from? 
It was coming from the all-inclusive party, right? It was coming from other LGBTQ community members. But because I stepped out of the box that they have put me in, then I'm not accepted by them. And they want me out. They want me silenced. No, I will not stop. And I will not be quiet. Because, again, this is America. And I get to say what I want to say. And I say it with respect. But when my life is being threatened by the all-inclusive left because I stepped out of where they put me, that just shows that it's not inclusive unless you follow the narrative. Not following a narrative. You're talking about critical thinking and logic. I use both of those. I research. I read. I use my critical thinking skills. I'm logical. And I, I don't follow. And I'm not a follower. Um, I think that might be obvious. And, um, and again, it's not an attack on anybody else. But what it is, is it's me uh, protecting myself and giving my educated reasoning of why I believe what I, I do and, and why I vote for the person I vote for. And another thing, I am assisting with another campaign this year for a Democrat. So, you know, for somebody, I don't, I don't want to give any leeway for somebody to come at me and just say, you're just, you're just a, a straight Republican voting straight down, yada, yada. Not true. I do my research. This candidate that I'm assisting, love her. She does the job well. She's the best candidate for that position. And I'm going to vote for her and I'm going to help her out on this campaign. So and she's know, a Democrat, if I remember our conversations, right? She is. Yep. She is. She is. She is a Democrat. Not, and, and I say that not like, oh, my goodness, uh, but no. rather uh, <laughs> pointing out. You she's don't amazing. Stick party line. You you go with the ideals. No. Again, uh, outside the box. Per, person over party. Yep. You know. What's in here? What's be. in here? So this is why we all need to become postmodernists. <laughs> so, Josh, for the the non-rhetorical people who might be watching, explain briefly, Thanks, briefly what that might mean. <laughs> hey, technically, this is um, French philosophy, not rhetoric. Um, in in particular, twentieth century French, or French <laughs> philosophy, but non-post-structuralist French philosophy, because post-modernism is not post-structuralism, which is not structuralism. All three, which related to each other, but Michel Foucault would be very upset if you called him a post-modernist or post-structuralist, as he rejected both. However, he also is considered to be the founder of post-modernism. Welcome to academia. We have lots of fun with our life. Um, lots, of, lots of naps. <laughs> well, what is? Being boiled down, if you're, you know, talking about, like, the idea of teaching of, like, a centralized identity, you know, boils down to what we would consider to be outdated philosophy. We would consider that to be philosophy of, like, the 19th and 20th century. That's essentialism. That's modernism. Like, rejecting the idea of grand narratives, that there is this essence that precedes our existence and that we're not determined by our life experiences – that's what it means to be a postmodernist, but believing you, like, I believe one of the most, like, and I understand it from a very pragmatic political point of view to argue for equal, equal rights and try to get inclusion in clauses. But I think one of the worst rhetorical moves by the LGBTQ community was to use the born this way argument as a way to justify legal means. Because it shouldn't matter if someone is born that way or they choose to be that way. They shouldn't be discriminated against by the law. Because you shouldn't be discriminated against by the law for you're not hurting anyone. Very simple principle. But I agree with that. 
And and so, it, but it was a good rhetorical strategy because it bought into if we are biologically born this way, then we can't be discriminated against in the same way of like race, sex, and these other kind of essential characteristics. But that misses kind of even what we might want to draw away of saying of whether someone chooses, you know, this, you know, to be this way, it it, it shouldn't matter because there's no reason for there to be, you know, the existence of like, you know, a secondary class of citizenship, whether someone's born that way or they choose to be that way. Like if you haven't committed a crime or have your rights redacted through, you know, some court, you know, system due process, then you should have equal protection under the law as is guaranteed by our constitution. We use the born this way and that made it essentialized. It made it that it was a part of the character. And so it, at some level did bring a lot of the left back to the 20th century think of thinking of modernism of essentialism of inherent characteristics rather than looking at the lived experiences because even when you do the historical you know graph and anal- you know analysis like when you look at someone and you say you know your particular group of people and community suffered x y and z throughout history and it has come out to impact you know you x y and z is here in the status quo Th- these are factual things that occurred this is not you know how you work and interpret you know and build from this and understand how the world is going to treat you because of this these are diff- you know the things about your lived experience that will determine your identity and how you interact with other people and how you engage with the world and that is postmodernism it's saying <laughs> you know it yes these past things happen but nothing is determinant of who you are and who your identity is but buying into these things exist ergo you are this thing or this essentialization of identity of any type is a philosophical regression. Mm. Minor tangent of the day. <laughs> we, we do lots of tangents so, on this show. <laughs> you, know, you know, minus the, I'm gonna just going to step over politely the born this way aspect of what you just said, but the uh, that everybody deserves equal rights under the law in our constitution, which is the law of the land, except for that is not okay. I completely agree with you in that. And the fact that I think we all should be, um, except certain categories like younger children, I don't think they deserve equal rights or protections under the law. Everybody else, LGBTQ, whatever, we all deserve the right to work, not be fired for our sexuality. You know, I, I, I agree with what you just said, that, but again, politely overstep the born this way. Yeah. And kind of to go with Danielle's point there about uh, the children. This is this is why we have the age of consent, right? Because like a lot of uh, coinciding with the teachers who have been stepping outside the curriculum's parameters and discussing these things that the bill now prevents them from legally discussing. A lot of times the schools were also supporting kids who are like, you know what? I am transgender. I'm not comfortable in my body. Pre-18 for sure. And the parents through this bill have the right to be informed of, of what their kid is telling teachers because the parent, as always, has the most vested interest in the well-being of their child. And I think this is one of one of the great, I won't call it a lie, I, I think it's a misunderstanding or a misstatement, I'll be generous, to believe that teachers care more about the kids than the parents do. I, I just, I, I find that incredibly difficult to believe that the person who 
gave birth to this child and has raised this child cares less than the teachers. You can point to anomalies where maybe someone has lived in an abusive home. But by and large, I think that that has been used as an excuse for teachers to say, you know what, I want to keep that secret with that kid, um, which which is where this has been called the anti-grooming bill. Because if a child between kindergarten and third grade is told by a teacher you know what, we don't have to talk to your parents about that. That is one of the most fundamental essences of grooming is desensitizing children to things about sex and sexual uh, sexuality, as well as keeping secrets with them. So while I don't believe that all teachers who might have stepped outside these parameters are in fact child predators, I do think that there is a very strong mirroring between what they are doing with the child and grooming. And at the very least, it is an ideological grooming. Uh, one that the children are not ready for. And I think that that's, that's an important thing that the bill is now protecting because it makes – or is protecting parents and children from, rather. is It is guaranteeing parents know what's going on. It's increasing transparency and it's making sure that the schools are accountable to the stakeholders, the shareholders. Now, devil's advocate, um, mm-hmm. me stepping on the other side. Yep. There, uh, let's mention that clause in there that if a reasonable person deem it inappropriate or unsafe to notify the parent of something going on, that it could cause harm, abuse, whatever to that child, then they'll figure that out and yes. not tell the parent. A reasonable person, but I need to make sure that 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 that, that is out there, that that clause is in there, yep. uh, that if, it, if there's going to cause abuse or, or harm to the child, then they won't be that that was really important that they added that, um, especially because not only did they add that, it's not just a teacher again going rogue and saying, "Ah, oh, well, I I kept this because I thought little Timmy here was going to be abused at home." No, no, no. It has to be by the school, which means there is a procedure established by the board of education through which there is now an appropriate channel to protect kids, and that actually further enforces Danielle, what you mentioned, a reasonable person. It's not just one individual, there is a procedure in theory that will be in place uh, by, I think it's June of 2022, where they they now have to put this procedure into place um, to comply with everything, including keeping the kids safe if they were to believe as a reasonable person might, the child might suffer abuse or neglect for being outed for these things. Yeah, I mean, I was actually going to push that it was like a massive solvency press. I think <laughs> even a, even a lot of like what this bill will be achieved, any any person who had predatory intent and had control over a local school district or in a position of power over this could well and you know mitigate you know mitigate whatever the reporting procedures were to avoid having to do that. Given this clause, with enough willpower, this is why vague bills cause tragic incidences and and bills consistently, not as consistently as necessary, get struck down on the fact of being vague alone because. The, so the quote from Bill is reasonably prudent person. You know, Judge Cla- Clarence Thomas one time looking at porn said, you know it when you see it. Well, there's a problem with that of whoever is in charge gets to define what a reasonable prudent person is. The definitions of abuse, abandonment, or neglect are defined in another piece of legislation, but who would believe this is a completely subjective statement that anyone can take advantage from from a position of power. It's going to be up to an individual school intendant, superintendent, president, principal, sorry, or a judge of whether or not 
a reasonable, prudent person agreed to this. And that may pro- provide remediation, may provide court action in the end, but doesn't 100% actually get at being clear legislation that sets good standards. Because um, it just says standards will exist. Not that, not that these are the standards, not that the next government won't come in and change the standards, not that someone else will, you know, do something with the standards, just there will be standards. You know, and I, with that, Joshua, say it was the principal, like I just told you, my elementary school principal was one of the ones who took me in and groomed me in the first place. So like, I completely get that. What I I would be a hundred percent more comfortable if it were to end up in court uh, and a judge who has to abide by the, the statutes that are written and in place mm-hmm. by what abuse really is and look at it at a legal standpoint, I would be way more comfortable with that than just a, a you, me, some social worker or whatever, making that decision. Because no, that, that needs to be clear. That part is vague and scary. One of the main criticisms that I think is that is levied most often, I believe, by people who probably haven't read the bill <laughs> um, or who are being disingenuous is that this is this law will marginalize the LGBTQ community. And I'm curious what what you guys would say, either in support of or in opposition to someone who might believe that. So in insofar that everything's political, uh, <laughs> yeah. well, so here's the thing. You had video games. And the video game that had you take the place of the soldier to go fight in a war was not ideological. But when you could swap the race of your character, it was ideological. And people got upset online over this. And it became ideological and political when it deviated from the norm of society, when it broke from the hegemonic position. And so that's where I find, and that's where I brought up the Mickey Mouse, you know, example of you could just write in here, if your intent was to ban talk about sex until a certain age, you could go with what the Democrats of Florida tried to amend and say, you're not allowed to talk about sex to K through third graders. That was the amendment, one of the amendments the Democrats proposed. It was rejected. Instead, they chose to kept the language of sexual orientation and gender identity. They could have had equally workable language. They chose to go with different language. I'm a communications scholar that sticks out to me. And what it does is it calls out to the people outside of the norm. It calls out to the people outside of the hegemonic position of the people outside of the gender identity and sexual orientation norm when it didn't have to, to achieve its goal. See, I I would push back against that and say that I don't see a reason to talk about, say, I, I mean, sexual orientation and, and the lineup of your sex and your gender. If a child hasn't gone through puberty, it's kind of difficult for them to be able to relate to that. It's like, I don't think there's a so, reason. But, but that's what I'm saying. Don't just say, don't, you're not allowed to talk to them about sex at all. Okay. But if we're achieving the same purpose, why does, why is that a hang up is what I'm trying to figure out. But, like, if you agree with me on that. Doesn't language and wording matter, Mr. Communication Scholar? Of course it does. That's not what I'm saying. Oh, what I'm okay, saying is okay, if, okay, if, okay, point finish. No <laughs> CX over, CX over. Beep, beep, beep. Go ahead. Point, wording matters. That's my point. Okay, here, but like is, wording matters, but like, the, the, and I'm saying that it was deliberate because people don't need, if they were like, great, I'm not talking about people having sex and who you, you want to be with romantically. 
but I still want to talk about, you know what, your your body might not line up with your gender. I'm saying they put it in there because it's inappropriate for K through third, period. And I'm saying, yes, language matters, and that's why it stayed. And I'm saying if we agreed that they don't need to talk about that, then what's the beef with the language? That's, that's what I meant. <laughs> and then, I mean, there's also, Joshua, with all respect, um, we were talking about how you wanted things to be in history taught factual. And what is sex for? It is for reproductive procreation, continuing our citizens or everybody on this earth. That is what it's for. It's not about what feels good. It's not about, it's not about that. If we want to talk about truth, truth is a man and a woman have sex. They, they reproduce and we continue to generations forward. Why bring anything else in that's more confusing than just the facts? That is the facts. And if that's what needs to be taught, which, I mean, then stick with the facts. facts Instant that gratification. I mean, that's not. Go fa- ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was going to say facts that don't get taught until later, which I think only increases the amount of confusion kids would have because it, it might have been mentioned in a sidebar by a teacher, but it's not in the curriculum until, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think Florida brings it up until like seventh grade, maybe sixth grade. I, I, I don't remember exactly, but it, it's it's years later, especially if it's. You know, kindergarten. I, I so I, I feel like to Danielle's point there, it's it's increasing confusion. I guess. Um, any any last thoughts before we go to our final final thoughts? Uh, we'll go to our hot takes. All right. Well, you're listening to the Central Hub for Political Discourse. All right. Uh, I'll kick off hot takes, and then we'll go Josh, then Danielle. So I guess my first hot take is that uh, again, parents are the biggest stakeholders here. They are the ones who have birthed the kids. They're the ones who raise the kids. They're the ones who are ultimately responsible for the kids. And passing off your kids to the school to instruct them in what you think the school should be teaching them in, right? The the curriculum, i.e., the curriculum, uh, does not mean that when I pass my kids off. To a public school, the school just gets to do whatever. They have to stay within state standards. Teachers don't get to do whatever. They have to stay within the parameters of the curriculum. And I really like how this bill protects the parents' rights to hold the schools accountable for what they should be teaching. When we rank as low as we do on the global scale uh, in education, there is no reason for teachers to not be using every second that they have in the classroom to be teaching the points of the curriculum they're supposed to be. And when we get to a point where it is deemed developmentally appropriate to have these conversations, by all means, have at it. So I see no issue with the restrictions that have been put into place. Schools report to parents. The school districts report to parents. And this, again, reinforces that where parents get to hold the school districts accountable through appropriate channels. Now, there is now a process by which they can not only know what's going on, but they get to hold the schools accountable if they step outside of that. I think they set great parameters through this bill. I think to Josh's points earlier about the vagueness, it can, in fact, create some issues. But again, I think that most of it is covered by either coinciding or previously passed legislation that makes sure that it is, again, the Board of Education that's setting these standards. Again, it's not the parents. So I really think that this was a nice balance. I think it achieves its goal of protecting the parents' rights as well as the children because there is a balancing act that has to take place there. Children under the age of 18 are unable to consent. Like by law, they are not capable of consenting. So why would teachers be allowed to step outside the curriculum in the shadows and then have these shrouded conversations supported by the schools in some districts where parents don't get to know about it? There was actually an instance where there was a girl who was not 
confused about her gender, had no questions, but the school told her in a meeting after school hours behind closed doors for an experiment to see how kids treat people whose gender don't line up with their sex, we want you to tell them you identify differently. And she went home and told her mother about it because she was confused. The mother was not allowed to talk to the school about this. They said, it's not your business. You don't have the right to do that. So this prevents that from happening. Um, and lastly, I would say that people who have deemed this the don't say gay bill fall into one of three categories. They either misunderstand what this bill is, and I don't fault them for that. They're being disingenuous, like I think the media and a lot of the Democrats who were opposed to this were saying, or they didn't read the bill, which wouldn't surprise me since a lot of our legislators don't, um, or, or they're a predator. Because if you are offended by this as a teacher who wants to be able to have these inappropriate conversations, I think that it falls too in line with grooming for me to think that that's okay. And personally, I, if, if they leave, no loss to the school in that instance, in my opinion. Children and parents need to be protected. That's my last hot take. So I wish I'll take up the hot take uh, mantle for uh, Ryan here and say this is government overreach and we shouldn't be accepting it. And that's fundamentally of your school should have local oversight with a parent teacher association and a local county commission that you elect and you should be involved with it. And if you are not and you're upset with something going on with your school, then I'm sorry, your opinion doesn't count. Get involved with your local school and education system or stop whining about it. Uh, these are the two options I present for you today. Using the federal or using the state or federal government to enforce teaching standards to fit your ideology when you could just be involved um, is always going to be a, a low for me. The education system is best when determined by educators. Uh, we are going to teach you things that are going to upset you and your children, and we will die like Socrates for being accused of corrupting the youth. Come at us. It will be another age again. You will ban sex ed. You will ban critical race theory. You will ban books. You will ban teaching about the Holocaust, and you will try. And guess what? You will keep at it. You will fire Angela Davis in the 70s for calling police pigs. What else will you want? The education system will always resist the dominant system because at the end of the day, we, we do not ever want to be an indoctrination system. So we will be a corrupting, a questioning system. And we should not be supporting the dominant system. In fact, we should be annoying the dominant system and, make, and asking questions for the sake of asking questions. And we should teach our students to ask questions, to ask for the sake of asking questions, to not accept the world as it is given, and to keep asking questions and to never accept the nonsense that they were given before, but to go, okay, well, why? Well, why do we believe that? Well, why do we accept that? And to not to just blindly accept the world. So there's a way, an appropriate, you know, way to have student oversight. There's also a way to look at the education system and go, we're not here to actually model little citizens for the, you know, state politicians to play with. We're here to build scholars. We're here to build active and engaged critical citizens who are willing to investigate and interrogate beliefs and not just accept the things given to them. People should disagree with some of the things being taught because we shouldn't just be an echo chamber of the things that came before us. If the education system isn't pushing the boundaries of what is acceptable, then we have stopped pushing the boundaries of human knowledge and we have stunted as an education system. We are always going to be on the bleeding edge, pushing and changing beyond where we currently are, or we're going to be on a cyclical repeat of nothingness new because we've just only started repeating what came before us. So yes, we will corrupt the youth, gladly. It's the point. We'll sometimes get it wrong, but there are ways to be engaged and there are ways that you can teach what you are going to teach your kids, 
but trying to use the government to mandate what your kids ought to be taught is only going to end in a form of tyranny one way or another. Um, with that, our number one goal should be the protection of children, period. Coming for our children in the manner of speaking of, of sexuality at a cognitive age where they're still picking their nose and, and uh, you know, sometimes wearing diapers, for God's sake. Like, why are we even debating on teaching them about sexuality and gender fluidity and all of that stuff? This bill had to be put here in order to protect our kids from educators. And I'm speaking from personal experience and not as a communication scholar or an educator, but from somebody that sat in the seat of a 12, 13-year-old girl that was taken advantage of and groomed by her track coach, her softball coach, her elementary school principal, and his wife. And I got to live that life. So I get to sit here and speak truth. And from a, from a seat that Ryan, I don't know your story, but I'm guessing that you don't, sir, Joshua, same. Um, there's a difference between learning of coming out of a book and then learning from personal experience. And my personal experience with that was I was blinded by the things that those teachers that I was supposed to respect, look up to, and admire. They lied to me. And my cognitive, cognitive aptitude was nowhere near the level of understanding what was going on. So how dare these people come after our kids and want to teach them things that are not safe? It is not okay. And I will continue to stand and be vocal, and I will protect those little ones until the day I die. All right. Well, Danny, thank you so much for joining us today. We we really appreciate your insight. She's going to be back uh, definitely on Tuesday at 530. So make sure uh, we will live stream that and then we will release that on our podcast platform if you want the audio. <laughs> if you don't want to look at me and Josh, you know, <laughs> then, then catch us on the audio only where we polish that up. But uh, that is going to be it for today. Uh, remember that you can find us on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, Twitch, Google Podcasts. Follow us on our social medias and uh, stay updated, stay informed. Come back for these conversations. That's where we're going to let you know, hey, we're live with Danny right now. Come check us out. So if you enjoy this show, give us a five-star review. Uh, make sure that you're hitting the like button, subscribing. That helps us get the news out there. And uh, I'm sure you find yourself somewhere between the liars. Goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.